In their feasts there is nothing wanting, either as to pomps or delights. They live upon all sorts of flesh in great plenty, and their drink is made of honey. Their country abounds therewith. Diodorus Siculus, writing of the Celts before the Christian era. Apart from the Celtic knowledge of honey, the use of beeswax was also known. In the Book of Rites, it is stated that one of the prerogatives of the kings of Leinster was to drink by the light of wax candles. The book goes on to state that there were seven candelabra of beeswax candles in the banqueting hall in Tara, the Tiak Mead Hurda, the house where the mead circulated. It was usual to keep a king candle, re candle, of enormous size, with a great bushy wick burning at night in the presence of a king. In the palace, it blazed high over his head. During war, it blazed outside his tent door. On night marches, it was borne before him. We are also told in the annals of Carol, king of Ossory, that coming out of his chamber in the middle of the night to attack the Danes in 860 AD, he had a large king candle carried before him, the light of which shone far on every side. Cormac MacArt, he's around about the third century, he wrote... Uh what was known then as the principles of criminal law and he enumerated the injuries done by bee stings to man and to animals corresponding fines that were laid down and this was enriched and developed by later lawgivers and uh, is now preserved in what we call the Brehen Laws part of those Brehen Laws known as the bee judgments were handed down almost intact father to son. They referred to uh, ownership, they referred to injuries done, they referred to quantities, sizes of uh, bees, amount of honey, amount of honey that was given to a chieftain when he visited an area. Uh, Various laws and regulations were laid down. They were most interesting, but they were very, very um, quaint language because of the fact that they were handed down from father to son for long numbers of years, maybe three, four, five, six hundred years until Sir Patrick uh, codified them. Measures. Four vessels of different sizes are assumed as the measure of the quantity of honey produced. One, the milch cow vessel, which a man can raise to his knees. Two, a sourisher vessel, which a man can raise to his navel. Three, a Kulpok heifer vessel, which a man can raise as high as his loins. Four, a dart heifer vessel, which a man can raise over his head. The rules relating to swarms of bees were complicated. They depended on the certainty or otherwise of ownership and the rank of the owner. They ran to many pages. As to known bees in the trunk of the tree of a noble, two-thirds of their produce are due to the owner of the tree and one-third to the owner of the bees to the end of three years and the bees are the property of the owner of the tree from then on. Two, as to doubtful bees in the trunk of the tree of a noble, three-quarters of their produce are due to the owners of the tree, and one-fourth to the doubtful owner of the bees to the end of three years, and the bees belong to the owner of the tree from then on. Three, as to the known bees in the top of a tree of a noble, one-third of their produce is due to the owner of the tree, and two-thirds to the owner of the bees to the end of one year. Uh, the next record we have was the Venerable Bede uh, in the 7th century. He referred in his history to Ireland as an island rich in milk and honey. Now, the monks from Ireland 
went across to Lindisfarne and uh, they probably were responsible. There's no evidence that Bede ever came to Ireland. In fact, I don't think he ever left uh, Lindisfarne. But what he recorded in his history was picked up from uh, monks from Ireland. Christians from the earliest times attached a beautiful symbolism to the beeswax candle. Being convinced of the virginity of bees, they regarded beeswax as typifying in a most appropriate way the flesh of Jesus Christ born of a virgin mother. From this has sprung the further conception that the wick symbolises more particularly the soul of Jesus Christ, and the flame the divinity which absorbs and dominates both. Thus, the great paschal candle represents Christ, the true light, and the smaller candles are typical of each individual Christian who strives to represent Christ in his life. The domestication of bees and the uses of their honey and wax were well established in ancient Ireland. But what about today? We have now an organisation with approximately uh, 2,000 members. There are about two and a half thousand beekeepers in Ireland altogether, uh, owning approximately uh, 30,000 hives. But um, uh, to get all these into an organisation is not easy. The EEC are giving a small aid now to encourage people to keep bees and to produce enough honey that uh, would uh, satisfy the whole market. Uh, at the moment, uh, the Irish market is consuming approximately uh, a a thousand tons of honey. Uh, we are only producing about three hundred tons, so there's a lot to make up. So, could you compute how many bees there are in Ireland from your statistics? Oh yes, but uh, I'm not a computer. I'm afraid it take a bit of time. Uh, Twenty, uh, approximately thirty thousand uh, hives of bees are in the country, and there are there are approximately an average of about forty thousand bees in in every in, in every um, colony. So you can use a computer on that. If young people want to go into beekeeping, my advice is before they uh, buy a hive or do anything else to do the course at Garmanstown and uh, it's, it's carried on each year from roughly from the 19th of uh, July uh, to the next weekend. And that course is about the only thing. I wouldn't sell bees to anyone or give bees to anyone that wouldn't do some kind of a course because then you might as well throw them out. You see, you have to know, we've, we've been going to Garmanstown for years, you know, and there's some of the finest lecturers that could be found. You have the beginners and you have the intermediates and you have the seniors, and they have the hives there. They generally have about 10 hives. That's a, you have to, you have to uh, manipulate the bees, go through the hives, and um, then you get your examination and you pass fine, you see. But it's the only hope, and of course, one course is nice but you should do uh, several courses, actually, to get really good at it. Because just like any other job, you know. Each county gives scholarships. Oh, yes, the scholarships for beginners. They are two. I don't know how many, but um, there are scholarships <coughs> for it, which is important, too, you know. But um, Garmiston is the only hope. Now, there's no use in, in, in starting in bees and say, oh, I'm going to get a hive and I'm going to have bees and going to have honey... Well, there's nothing further from the truth, you know. It, it's just a dead loss. And a hive now, to start off with, and equipment in a very small way is £100. It is a one-health slug. <laughs> Fridays, 
people kept bees always, so uncles and granduncles used to keep bees. But um, it was Brody introduced me to bees, I suppose. But I went away myself in the beginning. I wanted to be independent. We were married at the time. And I bought the first hive about uh, four or five years ago for £45. But uh, while I was trying to fool the bees about swarming, I messed it up. They had actually swarmed. I didn't know it because I didn't even know what a swarm looked like at the time. And I uh, broke down all the queen cells thinking that it would hold the queen inside the hive. And what I had actually done was I had cut off the lifeline. The queen had gone. I had cut down all the other queen cells that were left and that messed it up. So that was the first hive gone. I got a hive in from Brady's uncle and I did much the same thing with that. But uh, eventually we kind of acquired the knowledge. There is a lot of knowledge involved in beekeeping. One gets the idea that a beehive would be nice in the corner of the garden. We could get some honey out of it full stop and it's not as simple as that at all even though there are beekeepers that they call let alone beekeepers and they operate operate hives in this way but it's a very very inefficient and uneconomical way to do it it's estimated that the honeybee is more valuable as a pollinator about 10 to 20 times more valuable as a pollinator of plants than it is as a producer of honey and in its work as a, of pollination, it never damages the plant. It helps the plant to survive, and at the same time, it gets its food supply from it. It's probably the only living creature that doesn't destroy to live. This is symbiosis. This is a symbiotic relationship between the plant and the bee. And, of course, plants have developed... Uh, through the years they've developed over millions of years a system whereby they require cross-pollination because by cross-pollination you get a healthier, stronger, more vigorous plant. It prevents inbreeding in plants and nature abhors inbreeding. Uh, In addition, the plants have developed, as I said already, they've developed a system. The colours, for instance, the colours of plants are there to attract the insect. The colours, when we see lovely flowers, they're not there to, for our admiration, they're there mainly for to attract insects, and the main insect they're attracting is the bee. And they also produce scent for the same purpose. And the bee has a very, very keen sense of scent, so that it can get scents of plants at greater distances than we can get them. Regarding the colours of flowers, uh, the principal colours that the bee can see are the blues, yellows and uh, pinks. And most of our wild plants are of those colours. And it is remarkable that the colour that bees cannot see is red and that there are no native European flowers of a red colour. You get red-coloured flowers all right in Africa where they're sometimes pollinated by birds, but none in Europe. Bees are also constant to one type of plant when they're collecting food. For instance, if a bee goes out to collect uh, food from an apple tree, she'll continue at apple blossom while apple blossom is in flower. Similarly, if she's working wallflower, she'll continue with the wallflower, but she won't 
transfer from a wallflower to an apple or from an apple to a dandelion. And this is invaluable because she has the same type of pollen on her body. And, of course, the plant needs its own pollen. Plant must have pollen from another plant of the same kind in order to reproduce seeds. We have 600 hives and we have them in about 30 different areas. And we have them within a radius of 20 miles of here. And we rent sites and uh, uh, we just um, get permission to put our hives into a site for 12 months. And after 12 months, if we find that there's any difficulty uh, people getting stung or if there's any difficulty that we are not getting the returns that we should get, uh, we're at liberty to move. But uh, getting sites is getting more difficult all the time because of the new... um, uh, trends in farming and uh, when you get a good site you know you must mind it and, and you must be careful like not to offend anybody as far as bees stinging people are concerned <clears throat> You'd imagine that a lot of farmers particularly people into fruit and the like would be uh, would welcome beekeepers uh, Quite true, quite true um, We had uh, four permanent sites in orchards but as you know, um, the orchard have fizzed out now and uh, it's a lot of imported apples are coming in and um, they have grubbed out the orchards for various reasons. And uh, the net result is that uh, we are not needed in orchards that much. But uh, uh, again, of course, uh, bees are beneficial to other things besides apple trees and fruit trees. Um, they are very beneficial to the farmer in so far as uh, the white clover is concerned. White clover, you see, uh, sets the nitrogen in the soil and you have the bees to pollinate the white clover. And uh, we think like that uh, beekeeping is of wonderful use to the farmer. Uh, the amount of uh, profit that a beekeeper acquires from honey production is minimum compared with uh, the good that it's done to agriculture and to various things. Now, I've often heard it said like that if you could eliminate all flying insects out of this country in 10 years, it would be a barren country. That's how important insects are uh, to pollination and to the production of fruit and what have you. And uh, we think like that bees are the best because... uh, you can manage them, you can move them from place to place and all the rest of it. And I, I do think that uh, um, the farmers don't realise, you know, how beneficial bees are. But then again, things are changing and uh, we find that when we approach a man in the right uh, manner that uh, he'll cooperate with us and give us a sight. I was telling the temperatures that you have to have for um, to, to produce nectar that the, the, the hawthorn will have to be uh, up near 70 degrees and the white clover 72. Now, heather will produce at 40 degrees. Uh, we, get a, we, we did get a small amount of it here, but not so much. We're two miles from heather. But still, uh, in the harvest time, I found that there was a bit of heather honey in a few of the hives, and they went that distance now for it, over, even over a forest here above, you see. And... Um, there was, but heather honey then, unless you're prepared, you can't extract it. It's too thick. It won't come out. I've tried it, and of course I've been told about it in the magazines. You cannot extract heather honey. It's too dense. And you can do what you like with it, and you won't get it out. 
So section honey is the only thing by right that you can um, get with satisfaction from heather. The main flower in the country is the white clover, of course, and you, you have the bramble also, or the blackberry. Uh, they get a, a good deal from that. Um, the that starts the white clover flower starts about the 20th of June and it keeps going until the um, end of July. Um, they bring in the blackberry or the bramble uh, honey as well on, on that, and that's a very, very f- uh, mild flavour honey. Then, of course, you have the um, the heather. You you have the ling heather and you have the bell heather. The bell heather uh, comes in around the same time as the clover, a little later, say a week or two later. But uh, there's a very nice um, port wine-coloured honey out of that. We don't get much of that. There are, there are two areas of it, two pretty large areas in the Morn Mountains and County Down and uh, also in West Cork in the in the Mizzenhead Peninsula. Uh, you you get the bell heather, or yes, the bell. Well, the 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 uh, ling heather then, you'll get that in all the Dublin Mountains and the Wicklow Mountains and uh, in, uh, in the Kerry Hills and uh, in the Bog Valley. The Bog Valley is quite effective uh, as a, a second source of nectar for Dublin beekeepers and uh, good number of them travel out to the Bog Valley and they also go take their bees of course to the Dublin Mountains or the Wicklow Mountains for the, the Ling Heather. Ling Heather is a special quality heather and uh, very very scarce and uh, it's hard to get because it's expensive to r- remove bees out there and to look after them so far away from home. But uh, the um, the uh, heather from the Bog Valley is a mixture of the Ling and the Napweed and it's a lovely flavoured honey. And anybody that uh, would taste the uh, the Bogavallon honey would wouldn't uh, be so keen anymore in tasting any other type of honey. What about changing agricultural patterns? The use of silage, the fact that woodlands are being cut down. There's a big change o- over, especially since we joined the EEC. Uh, because farmers uh, are getting grants now for uh, reclaiming uh, wasteland. And wasteland, of course, uh, grew all types of weeds and brambles, and uh, it was a a means of giving uh, extra foraging activity to the bees. But now that is all being reclaimed, and uh, fences have been knocked down, and roadside fences have been very close by uh, mechanical means and the result of all that is that the amount of nectar and pollen uh, the source of it is uh, being diminished every year Uh, the uh, normal habitat of the pollinating insects is being destroyed and the very same here in the Dublin area where uh, you have the uh, environmental uh, face of uh, Dublin is changed by um, um, development uh, and uh, the result is that uh, trees are being cut down wholesale and that reduces the scope for nectar bearing uh, trees and uh, and for the bees as well Let me see, catkin willows uh, this time of the year have pollen then the, the um, um, hawthorn comes along but you have to have a temperature of uh, 65 degrees for the hawthorn to produce nectar you have to have a temperature of 72 degrees for clover before it will produce nectar you see and of course wet weather 
is very bad because the bees won't collect when the flowers are wet. Or oh, the trees. Now, um, an old um, lime tree, say a lime tree 100 years old, and there's a lot of them over 100 years old, uh, during its flowering time will produce as much nectar as one acre of white clover. In America, they um, they pay quite a, a sum for per hive to the beekeeper, and he takes these bees out. Now, at one time, they found that on the white clover, or what they call the clover there, they call it um, alfalfa. They found that by putting bees, uh, a certain number of bees per acre on the alfalfa fields, that they had a return uh, of eight times over of seed when they were used, when they would have an alfalfa for seed. And the pollination uh, of the bees made a better seed and a more uh, mature seed. The Dublin area is can be quite effective insofar as that you have a lot of forage there, especially early in the year, from, say, the middle of April until about the end of May. That is the Dublin flow. And uh, during that period, because of the higher temperatures within the, the city caused by uh, such things as factories, uh, the, the uh, traffic and the roads... Uh, the central heating and the big population of people. Uh, All these factors are responsible for raising the temperature. Uh, Thus, the bees can work on the flowers, and because the temperature is high, the flowers yield nectar and pollen copiously. And during that period, uh, when all the bees of the rural part of Ireland are idle, they're working very, very hard in the Dublin area and uh, therefore uh, during that period they they could uh, have an average per hive uh, honey production surplus honey of approximately 30 to 35 pounds if they're cared right and looked after well usually in the country the floor starts uh, the white clover floor which which is the main floor in in the rural areas that starts about the middle of June and it lasts until the end of July. About the same period, but much later. To do the work of pollination and to gather nectar, the bee must first find the flowers she seeks. Usually uh, when, when, they, when a bee discovers a source of nectar or a source of pollen, she comes back and she does a dance. And uh, by that dance indicates the direction in which the pollen is. They even are so sophisticated uh, in, in their, in, in their um, movements that they can tell the bees of the colony how far the source is from the hive uh, by doing a dance on the face of the comb. They're doing the figure eight dance or the dance right up through the comb in a zigzag fashion. and uh, That denotes the direction of the pollen, the distance... Uh, and the nectar also, and the distance from the hive, uh, according to the direction of the sun. So other foragers watch them doing this dance, and then they take those directions... Uh, from from the dance, and they go straight to the source, and they get their, their, uh, their load of food. And what's the effective foraging range from the hive? Well, the effective foraging range... Uh, it means, of course, that, that uh, what what um, if 
if, if it isn't too far, the effective foraging range would normally be about a mile's distance from the hive, a, a mile radius, if you like. This uh, is a question of time and motion. It is, of course, a question of time and motion. It's uh, transport costs. If, if it is longer than that, it, uh, well, they, they won't bring in as much nectar or pollen. The energy they use will burn up. Quite right, quite up. right. But uh, that doesn't mean that a bee couldn't fly much farther than a mile, of course, uh, or two miles. A bee could probably fly out three miles, and three miles back, that's six miles. But uh, they wouldn't be effective uh, from the point of view of foragers there. Do they get exhausted? Oh, yes, they do indeed. If they have heavy loads and if they're flying against the wind, they could get exhausted and die in the attempt. Uh, mostly all bees, their, uh, they, they, their life, their working life outside of the hive as foragers would be approximately three weeks in the summertime. They wear themselves out on the job. They're very, very hard workers. Uh, in the wintertime, of course, when they're in cluster, uh, the bee lives uh, for about six months. So... Uh, each successive generation of forager uh, has about what, about um, a 12-week cycle of life? Uh, yes, from the laying of the egg to the emergence of the cell is three weeks. Three weeks during house duties are six and six weeks in the field. And then at the end of the season, you say they go into a cluster. These obviously don't go out foraging. Uh, oh no, they, there's no foraging in the winter time. The only thing they take in the winter time are cleansing flights. That's to um, go out and take a cleansing flight and uh, uh, come back again. But uh, it's very, very short, and uh, it um, uh, it doesn't take long because they, they get frozen or they get perished if they stay out long. So the last generation of the season's bees go into this cluster? They, they go into a cluster, and they, they just like the shape of a rugby football, uh, and the, the bees that are on the outside of the cluster today, if you could look at them tomorrow, they're on the inside, and they make their own heat. And once you can keep the hive dry, it doesn't matter how cold it is, because bees will make their own heat by um, uh, extending the cluster. If, if it gets warm, if the temperature goes up outside the hive, they extend their cluster, the football will get larger, and then they distend the cluster at night when the frost comes uh, into a smaller ball like a goose egg. When the hive gets overcrowded, again, it's like people. When a house gets too filled with uh, people, one gets mad and goes away. Well, the bees, uh, when the hive gets too crowded, they will swarm. And the old queen has to leave with maybe half the bees of the hive. And they'll go and they'll stay for a while, a couple of hours around the place on a bush or something, and they'll send out their scouts to find a new home. But now, in our case here, I generally have a couple of decoy hives out, you see, with a little honey in them. And the bees will go in any time and take the honey out. Now, normally then, um, when they swarm, they know that, they, that there's a home somewhere around near. And I have found several times. Last year, I got two swarms that went, just went right in, no problem. Uh, they could swarm three times, say roughly three times. The first one is the big swarm. Now, they won't raise a single queen. They will raise maybe six queens, um, you know. And the same egg, uh, you'll get a queen out of the same egg as you'll get a worker. So um, they take an egg and they build a, a large cell around it for the queen. The queen is a fully developed worker. 
workers are undeveloped queens, you see. But this queen, uh, it's according to the way she's fed that she'll develop to be a full-grown queen and that will lay the eggs, you see. So uh, after a short time, the hive, and weather is fine, she goes out to mate, and of course the drones, you have to have good drones as well as a good queen, you know. And uh, she'll mate and come back to the hive. She'll take the position of the hive when she's going out, and she'll fly above the level of where the ordinary flight of worker bees are. When she's going on her honeymoon flight, she'll go above that and the drones go after her, you see. And they have to mate in mid-air, they can't mate any other way. So she comes back into the hive and in about three weeks she lays, she starts to lay and everything is okay. So that if you have, you have a young queen then and of course she will lay from 2,000 to 3,000 eggs in a day. And that's her only job. She's just a machine for laying eggs. Some people say, oh, the queen has full authority of the hive. There's no such thing, you know. She just lays eggs constantly, night and day. And uh, uh, towards the harvest, of course, she tapers off. And into the winter, then there's no more eggs laid until the spring again. Uh, uh, there was a general belief that when a virgin queen emerged, that she was allowed, she would fly for a certain distance. And then she would be followed by the drones. And after going... For a mile or so, she would turn back and she uh, would be serviced by the first drone to uh, catch up with her, thus ensuring the survival of the fittest. Um, a gentleman who had a wooden leg in the district, when he heard this story, was intrigued by it and he pointed out that if the same uh, uh, treatment were applied to humans, that his chances of uh, 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 the continuation of his species would be very, very remote, very remote, remote. People have ideas, myths, I suppose, fairy tales or whatever you'd like to call them, about bringing bees back from swarming. If the bees are in the air, they have swarmed out of the hive and you want to get them back into the hive again. Uh, some people uh, had this idea of... Uh, banging the fire irons, the, the noise would bring them back, banging brass or something like that, they had that idea. And uh, it's only a, a myth really, it doesn't work. The one that we're told does work is that if you get a large mirror, and if, assuming that if the bees are swarming, it's generally a fine sun shining day, and it, you can, by shining the sunlight, reflecting the sunlight onto the swarm in the air, you can actually again fool the bees by leading them to believe that there are two suns when they know that there should be only one. And they say that this may bring them down. Uh, another thing is some people spray them with water. But uh, again, you'd want a fairly powerful sprayer to be able to get up over them and uh, lead them to believe that it's actually raining. The, the, the most common disease in this part of the country is the, uh, uh, the Isle of Wight disease ordinary acarine diseases caused by a mice attacking the breeding apparatus of the bee and eventually it will call the, the, the worker to smother. It spreads rapidly in the hive and will spread then as a particular colony gets uh, weak. The, there's a danger that the other, the adjoining swarms or hives uh, will attack the weaker one and uh, then it will spread throughout the apiary very, very rapidly. Uh, it can be countered in the early stages, but it's not easy 
once it gets established. The damp weather, of course, does help in promoting it. Uh, a more serious disease is um, the American fowl brood that will attack the brood and destroy the here. Naturally, um, a working bee uh, during the active stages of its life will only live for about eight weeks, sometimes shorter. Eight, sometimes as short as three weeks, and uh, with no brood coming to replace the, the dying bees, the colony is doomed. Then that disease is far more serious in the sense that it remains. The, the Acarine of Isle of Wight disease dies with the swarm, and one can start off anew without any danger. But the American fowl brood disease persists for years, and the only uh, effective way, absolutely effective way of uh, uh, guarding against a recurrence is to destroy, the bury the hive and s set it ablaze with petrol. That's a bit expensive. That's rather too expensive, seeing that a, a hive nowadays uh, fully equipped will cost about at least £60. Uh, apart from the cost of the swarm. Uh, a third disease is uh, nosema. I know very little about it because I had no experience of it, but generally it's not as serious as the others. The, they were always imported from Britain and Bugfast Queens, but it has been proved that the Bugfast Queen is not bred as such in England, it's bred in Israel, and the disease, Varroa disease, has it started in, out there and it has spread and it has got as far as uh, Germany at this stage. So um, now that this problem of the, the, those bees could have it coming in and I believe that it takes about seven years before it will show any signs that you'll have your bees will have any signs of disease. And at the moment there is no uh, way of controlling uh, the disease. If you get it, your, your beekeeping days are finished. Uh, another point about the Varroa is that people can import queens in the post. The queen would fit into a matchbox and they can be posted in. And it's very hard to have control over those unless these people are actually found out, you know, somewhere. But I think there's a maximum of a £500 fine for anybody who's caught importing those. I'm a member of the executive of the Federation and... Uh, we have put uh, pressure on the government for to have a complete ban on, bee on the importation of bees. One of the hazards of beekeeping is that you can antagonize neighbors. If you have neighbors with young, having young children, uh, there is a danger, of course, that uh, children could be stung by them. Um, but still, the danger of, them being, of a sting being fatal is about one in a thousand. Uh, there's no great danger. It, it doesn't do a lot of children any harm to get a, a sting or two. And indeed, it does no harm to anybody. Um, stings, uh, they're, 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 it is a question of mind over matter with them. If, if you get a sting, the shock you get from it, uh, you, you think you're a lot worse off than what you are. But stings aren't all that bad at all. How do you remove a bee sting? Uh, the best way is not to uh, catch it uh, with the thumb and index finger, but to, to scrape it out with the nail of the thumb, or alternatively with, with a knife. Just scrape it out sideways and, uh, okay, you, you remove the sting and the acid, but if you catch the sting, you'll, uh, you, you will, you're inclined to squeeze the acid into the flesh, and it is the acid that uh, creates the pain.
But of course, stings are very good for rheumatism, and um, indeed, stings will give you energy if you get enough of them and if you can stick them. Bee venom is believed to be a cure and also a preventative of arthritis, and it's used extensively in the United States of America. They now produce the bee venom by allowing the bees to pass over a, a pad with an electric cord running through it. The bees sting the pad and the venom then is extracted and dried and it's injected into people having arthritis and it's believed to be, it's reported to be a cure for it. Uh, the explanation given is that when we get the sting of the bee, it increases the production of cortisone in our bodies. We produce cortisone naturally in our bodies and that this cortisone reacts with whatever the venom that causes the arthritis. Well, when bees sting you, they've really been very brave about it because what they're doing is committing a form of harry carry in a sense. The sting in the bee is right down at the bottom of its abdomen and it's, it's the same design as a fish hook. So when it sticks this into your skin, it gets, goes in and it won't come out. So that when the bee flies away, it tears the whole sting out of the back of its body and as a result, the whole bottom of its abdomen is all damaged and the, the, the bee will actually die. It leaves the bee sting inside new and people who are very allergic to bee stings um, will swell up and become very allergic to this because the bit of the bee is actually still stuck in their hand. Now, on the other hand, wasps are nasty creatures. They have a hypodermic syringe in their abdomens and they can, as it were, give you an injection. So they stick this little needle into you, pump in some venom, pull out the little needle and fly off again and they can sting somebody else half an hour later. The joys of beekeeping, uh, for instance, uh, when you get a swarm, you know, there is something in in handling a swarm, even though I've handled, I suppose, thousands and thousands of swarms, uh, even today when I'd get a swarm, there's something about that, you know, that I like to take a swarm, I like to throw them out in the landing board, I like to see them running in home, and I like to come back later on and see what progress they have made. Uh, that's a wonderful joy. The joy of beekeeping, of course, is the outdoor life, that you're working outdoors and uh, you're working close to nature. Uh, the joy of beekeeping, of course, is when you get off that first crop of honey and uh, you have to find a ways and a means of extracting it. And there's a, a, a great sense of achievement, of course, in, in producing your own honey and to be able to say, well, we produced that. The challenges, of course, in beekeeping, the challenge of, of disease, the challenge of finding new apiaries, uh, the challenge of getting bees for to put into your, your hives. But all in all, it's all going through life and it's all part of a beekeeper's way of life. And I think it's a wonderful way of life. And we don't find one year very, 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 very much before the next one is in, you know. Time seems to fly. We float from one operation to another, like the springtime opening the hives and uh, then putting on supers, then taking off the crop of honey, then feeding the bees for the winter, um, then manufacturing hives for the coming year and anything that would be done and looking forward to the year. You know, uh, beekeepers always look forward to the coming year and think that it's going to be a great year. And we like to, we like to think that 82 will be one of those years that we'll say, well, that was a bummer.